0: hey everyone, you're tuned in to the Philippi Sermons Podcast. We're currently in a series through the Book of Acts. If you want more information about our church, head over to philippichurchgp.com. There you can also find a link to our other conversations podcasts where we interview people and have Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused conversations. Hey, may the Lord bless you and speak to you as you take in His Word. If you guys have your Bibles at home or tablets or whatever you got, fire them up. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we're going to be. So I'd invite you guys to meet me there. 1 Corinthians 15. So Martin Luther, the reformer, he said these words. He said, our Lord has written the promise of resurrection not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. I just want you to think about that as we look at this. You know, we often think about God as uh, lots of things. We think about him as a a warrior. We think about him as a judge. We think about him as a father. We think about him as as many things, many of which he's portrayed himself as. But, you know, he actually many times in the Bible, portrays himself, interestingly, as a gardener, as a gardener. You know, it's no accident that Easter falls in springtime. Springtime is incredible. I mean, everything has been dead for like three months, right? Everything's just, it's cold. The trees look like they're completely gone. There's no life. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, what looked like what it was dead just explodes with life. I mean, springtime's incredible, isn't it? And God, the Father, he is the ultimate gardener. When we think about his cosmic eternal story, when we think about our part in it, we think about what he's done in our worlds, um, I think the, one of the best illustrations that we could use is actually gardening. It's actually um, the idea of agriculture, trees, fruit. And this is all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, when God created the heavens and earth, Genesis, what did he do? He planted a garden. And then he put gardeners in the garden, and they were image bearers of him because he is a gardener. God's in the business of planting. He's in the business of bringing forth life. He does it, and he does it really well. The Old Testament refers to Israel. Uh, The Old Testament prophets referred to Israel as a vineyard. As a vineyard, there's multiple times in the Old Testament where um, God refers to them as his vineyard. He came in and he planted like a wild bush. He took it and he he planted it in a a way that it was supposed to bring forth fruit. That was the purpose of it. Now, uh, we don't really get this now because we do weird things like plant chia heads and plant topiary bushes and plant flowers and just things that are aesthetic. But in the ancient Middle East, if you planted a plant, it was for the purpose of fruit that was why you planted a plant. If you had a vineyard, it wasn't just for fun. It wasn't a pet vineyard. It was for the purpose of wine. It was the purpose of grapes. And so when God planted this earth and when he planted Israel and when he planted you and I into it, he has this expectation that we bring forth fruit. That's the expectation. That's the reality of the gardener, the father who is the gardener. Now, Jesus, he had this interesting relationship with uh, agriculture. He used it all the time in his analogies and when he was trying to communicate some of the most important truths to his disciples. And there's this really interesting scene that you can read about in the Gospel of Mark. I'm spacing it right now exactly where, and I forgot to write it down. But he's this, there's this scene where Jesus is on his way. It's his last week um, before he goes to the cross, and he's on his way up to the temple. And as he's going, he sees a tree off in the distance. It's a fig tree. And he stops, and he goes over to the fig tree, to try to find some food. Okay? It's the morning time. He's hungry, ready for some breakfast, wants a snack. Goes to the tree and the tree has no fruit. And Jesus does something really bizarre. He curses the fig tree. <laughs> it's like it's totally random. It's like this some kind of divine tantrum. I mean, Jesus gets mad that there's no fruit and he curses the fig tree and it withers and dies. And the disciples are just thinking, "What in the world is Jesus thinking?" Now, if you know the background a little bit more, if you know the agriculture of the Middle East world, you know that fig trees, um, they don't grow figs in the early springtime, but what they do is they put forth these little nodules, these like little pre-fruit things. And what you can do is you can, you can go and you can grab a bunch of them and you can just kind of chew on them. A little bit of cal- calories, a little bit of a snack. So Jesus knew that. And he knew that if this tree was a living tree, that it would bring forth some of these nodules. And if it didn't have any, then it was really a barren tree. So he comes up to the tree, and there's no fruit, so he curses the tree. He goes about his business. He goes into the temple, cleanses the temple. The next day, or I think it was that evening, as they're coming back home to Bethany, um, they go by the tree, and Jesus uh, sees the tree, and the disciples see the tree, and they say, what's up with this? What's with the tree? And Jesus explains that it was a picture, a prophetic picture, uh, an image of the fact that Israel, in its fruitless state, was about to come to an end. That, that, that the vine that was Israel, that was not bearing fruit, was to now be replaced with a new life. That the temple itself would be destroyed in, in just a matter of years. That the entire system um, of Israel would be uprooted and changed. Matthew 13, he says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So here's what Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples. He was trying to communicate them that that the vine of Israel was coming to an end and that new life was coming into this world. And the way that he communicated that was that this new life would start with something very small, It would start with a seed a mustard seed one of the smallest seeds and he he was communicating to his disciples that this seed was going to have to go into the ground and essentially it was going to have to seemingly die i mean it doesn't make sense does it you take a seed and you put it in the ground and bury it it's like you're giving it a funeral right but that seed once it goes into the ground and it dies it what brings forth life and brings forth fruit. This is what Jesus was trying to communicate his disciples. Listen to John 12, 23. Jesus answered them. They're asking him, what's going to happen? When are you going to the cross? Or when are you going? When is the kingdom coming? All of these kinds of things. Jesus answers them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless... When he says truly, truly, by the way, that means this is important. Tune in here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is saying that God's purpose, God the gardener, his purpose in the future world that's coming is all going to start with something very small. That small thing is a seed. And of course, the seed was referring to himself. He says, I am that seed. I'm gonna go into the ground. And seemingly going to die, but that won't be the end because out of that death will come great life. Now, of course, the problem was is that the, the disciples were still very much attached to the old life, to the old vine of Israel. See, they wanted Jesus to come in and be a renovator. They wanted him to come in and just sort of soup up or, or fix Israel, bring it back to its former glory. Jesus had no interest in doing that. His goal in coming to this world was to completely start over with a whole newness of life. And that newness of life was all packed into one little thing, one little seed, and that was his life. Absolutely fascinating. The narrative story of God's redemption is not rearranging the earth, it is replanting. Let me say that again, because it's really important. The narrative of God's redeeming work in this world is not rearranging the parts. It's not trimming of a hedge. It's not fertilizing an existing plant. It's a replant. And that replant begins with the seed of Jesus Christ. Now having said that, obviously this morning we're here to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. So the topic for this morning is obvious. The resurrection of Christ. Now ever since I was a kid, I've always wondered, what? Is the big deal? I remember being a child and and getting up early and going to set up church, and we'd do all these extra things. We'd have baptismal, we'd have flowers, we'd have barbecues, all of this extra stuff. And it was like the whole church calendar just revolved around Easter. It was just this big deal, okay? And well, okay, it's about the resurrection. But I always remember thinking as a kid, well, what's why is that such a big deal? Isn't the cross really the big deal? I mean, what's what's the big deal about the resurrection? Well, the New Testament makes a really big deal about it. And we need to ask the question this morning, why is it such a big deal? Why is the resurrection so important and crucial to my faith? And in case you don't believe me that it's important and crucial, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul literally says the prerequisite for faith, the prerequisite for salvation is believing in the resurrection. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you're not actually saved. He says it, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that what? God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. No resurrection, no saving faith. It's really important. Paul says in our text in 1 Corinthians 15, he says in verse one, uh, 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, okay, He's saying, hey, guys, when I was there with you in Corinth, the most important thing that I told you is this. He's the first of first importance. What I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The resurrection was a really big deal to the early church, a really big deal to the apostles, a really big deal to Jesus. He tried to prepare the disciples for this reality that was coming. Listen to what Paul says in our text in 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll get to it and and double-click on it in a minute, but just listen to it. He says, If Christ did not raise, we wasted our lives. Our faith is in vain and futile. We are still in our sins, he says, and we are most, listen, we are most to be pitied. That's pretty intense. The resurrection is a big deal. But why is it a big deal? Why is it so important? Why is it something that cannot be removed in such a way that we are left with an actual true Christian saving faith? Why is it so important? That's the question that I want to ask this morning. So this morning, we're not going to look at the narrative of Jesus' resurrection, because I think you probably know it. And this morning, we're not going to look at um, sort of uh, historical evidence for the resurrection, because I think you've probably heard some of that. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the theological—theological just means the study of God—the theological implications of the resurrection. Why is it so important? Why does it matter? That's what I want to look at with you guys this morning, and I think that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is going to walk us through. So let me do a little bit of background work in 1 Corinthians 15 so that you understand what we're stepping into. Again, These these letters from Paul, okay, they're letters written into a particular time period. There's all kinds of things going on at the time, and Paul's responding to particular things that were happening. So we come in in the 21st century, uh, in 2020, and we're like, what is he talking about? So I need to give you a little bit of context, a little bit of background as to what Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15 for. So here's what it is. Here's what 1, 1 Corinthians 15 is. Paul is responding to the question that I just asked. And that is, why does the resurrection matter? Okay, Paul had caught wind, apparently, that his church, the church that he had planted in Corinth, um, was beginning to deny or doubt the bodily resurrection of Christ. They were having some some concerns about that idea. Their position was starting to waver. And so as Paul is sort of pastoring these guys through a letter that he wrote, um, he includes in that letter an entire, what we call a chapter correcting them on the importance of why the resurrection matters. Now, we have to ask the question, why are they even asking about the resurrection? Why are they even doubting the resurrection? Why do these guys have a problem with the resurrection? And why does Paul have to correct that? And the answer is this. They're Greek. Okay, these are Greek Christians. Okay, these are Gentile converts. And because they're Greek, their background is what is, is in what is called Platonic thought. Platonic meaning Plato Okay, as in the philosopher, Plato and Aristotle. See, Plato, about three 400 years before Christ, he taught this philosophy. He taught this philosophy that some people call dualism. That, that spiritual world and the natural world are actually in conflict with one another. And that one takes priority over the other. The Greeks believed that the spiritual realm was the preeminent reality, the preeminent realm, if you will. And the spiritual was what we were going to. The spiritual was the point. The physical, therefore, was inferior to the spiritual. This is how the Greeks thought. The point of dying for the Greek was to escape the physical and and to inhabit the spiritual. So now, you have Paul coming along and preaching the gospel, and at the very nucleus of his gospel message is this idea about bodily resurrection, the fact that Jesus, our Lord, became a man, and when he went to heaven, he brought his humanity with him. You can imagine how that would sort of rub against a Greek mindset that had been, um, you know, bought into Platonic thinking. So they take issue with that. Why would God, who is perfect and righteous, want to become a creation or not a creation, pardon me, why would he want to become part of creation? Why would he want to step out of spiritual world and into physical world, let alone why would he want to keep any part of physical, his physical world when he went back to heaven? Why would he want to keep his humanity? The, the Corinthians had a hard time with this. So Paul, he responds to it, and that's exactly what 1 Corinthians 15 is. Now, this is just a side note, but I find it interesting that in the West in our, our, our Western Christian culture, we've very much veered into Platonic thinking, okay? We, we have this very low view of the physical realm. We have this very high view of the spiritual realm. We think about heaven, we think about some kind of a spiritual, eternal, floating existence, which is why I think a lot of people think heaven sounds super lame, because they, they picture floating somewhere uh, in an immaterial space. That's not the gospel at all. In fact, the gospel is that God is coming to renovate and recreate a very physical universe, but we'll we'll get into that. So here's my outline. If you guys have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to pick up in verse 12, and I'm just going to look at three different points, okay, and really just two of them are in the text here. Verses 12 through 19, what Paul is going to do is he's going to ask the question, what do we lose if we lose the resurrection? Okay, what do we lose? Verses 12 through 19, what do we lose if we lose the resurrection? And then in verses 20 through 28, he's gonna ask the question, what do we gain with the resurrection? Okay, so let's start there. Verses 12 through nine, what do we lose without the resurrection? In other words, what if the seed of Jesus' life was only buried and never rose, never created or brought forth life? So to understand the importance of something, sometimes you have to remove it. Great example of this. I really miss you guys. (laughs) just, you know, and not that I didn't know I loved all of our the people in our church before, but man, it is so much more obvious now because we can't hang out with each other. We can't be together. Uh, another example of this, uh, I, I heard a, a buddy say this the other day. I thought it was really profound. He was talking about how movie producers sometimes, when they're making a film and they get really attached to a particular scene, that they'll remove that scene from the movie, and then they'll watch the movie without the scene and see if the movie makes sense see if the movie still drives, see if this movie still has um, emphasis, right? I thought, I thought that's a great analogy about the resurrection, and that's kind of what Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 15. To the Corinthians, he says, hey, what if the resurrection never happened? What would life look like? What would life look like? And that's exactly what we're going to look at. So, it's exactly what Paul does. Look at verse 12. Let's read it together. Verse 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Now listen, and if Christ has not been raised, he says, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all, of all people, most to be pitied. Now come on, Paul. Isn't that a little dramatic? Like, isn't that a little dramatic? He's literally saying that we wasted our lives if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. Now, he says six things that are the the byproduct of no no resurrection. Now, I'm not going to look at all six of those because we don't have time. I think they boil nicely down into three main things. He says three basic things that are the result of there being no resurrection. The first one is, he says, if there's no resurrection, then the gospel message that we preach to you is false teaching. He says, particularly in verse 15, it's misrepresenting the Father, okay? And that might sound dramatic. Can't we get rid of the resurrection and still be true teachers? Does that make us a false teacher if we believe the resurrection happened? Paul says, yes. If Jesus didn't rise, he says, we are false teachers. Then everything we've said has not been true. You see, the resurrection is the proof positive that Jesus was who he said he was. If Jesus didn't resurrect, then he either was completely confused about who he was, he was, or he was a complete liar. Jesus said he was gonna rise. He said he was gonna die, he said he was gonna rise. And the, the nucleus of the message of the early church was the resurrection. So if the resurrection didn't happen, he says, we're basically a bunch of liars. It's really important. The second thing he says is he says, if Jesus didn't raise, we are still in our sins, verse 17. Our faith is in vain. In other words, we might as well be believing in a toaster. (laughs) It doesn't matter what we believe in if the resurrection didn't happen. And that might seem dramatic, but hey, when you go to Dairy Queen and you order a blizzard, what do they do? They flip it over to see if it's legit, to show you that it's legit. Well, let's flip that over. Is Paul, is Paul what, he, what he's saying here, is it legit? If Jesus didn't raise, are we really truly still in our sins? I mean, couldn't Jesus have just died for our sins spiritually, and then his soul could have left his body and gone to heaven, and his body could have just been in the grave? I mean, wouldn't that still have atoned for sin? Well, let's think about it. Let's think about it. Listen to what J.C. Ryle said, one of my favorite uh, 1800s uh, theologians. He said, "We we need not wonder that so much importance is attached to the Lord's resurrection. It is the seal and memorial stone of the great work of redemption, which he came to do. It is the crowning proof that he has paid the debt he undertook to pay on our behalf, won the battle he fought to deliver us from hell and is accepted as our guarantee and our substitute by our Father in heaven. Now listen to this. Had he never come forth from the prison of the grave, how could we ever have been sure that our ransom had been fully paid? Had he never risen from his conflict with the last enemy, how could we have felt confident that he has overcome the power of death from the devil? but thanks be unto God, we are not left in doubt. The Lord Jesus really rose again for our justification. The, the resurrection, he says, is the memorial stone, the seal, the proof positive that Jesus did in fact conquer sin on the grave, in, or, pardon me, on the cross. The fact that death did not keep him gives us proof and confidence of what did happen on the cross. Jesus on the cross, without the resurrection, is a cross without a crown. It's a bride whose dowry has been paid, but no groom to come and claim her. Jesus, if he didn't raise, there's no human interface for us to bring us to the Father, right? There's no, there's nothing to, to unite heaven and earth again. Remember Jesus' prayer, the Lord's prayer, Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Jesus' mission was to reunite heaven and earth back together. If Jesus didn't physically raise, then there's nothing to bring heaven and earth back together. He becomes the ambassador of heaven and earth. He connects the two back together. If he just died and went back to, his soul went back to, 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 to heaven, none of that is accomplished. This is Paul's point. We are still in our sins. And then thirdly, in verse 18, he says, "Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished." Verse 19, "If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied." In other words, if Jesus didn't raise from the grave, then we, all we get is this life. It's all we get, this life. And when you're young, That sounds great. But as your clock ticks, it starts to sound less great. Now, you could say, well, I mean, isn't that kind of extreme for Paul to say that he's wasted his life? Wouldn't it be better to follow Christ even if he wasn't really God? Well, I guess that depends. I guess that depends on what your Christian experience looks like. For Paul, following Christ meant getting beat up, getting thrown in prison, starving, getting shipwrecked, being disliked, being mocked. That was what it meant to follow Christ for Paul. And so he's saying this, that if Jesus isn't really who he said he was, if he didn't really raise, I wasted my life. I wasted my life. And if we can't say that, we might want to think a little bit about how we're living our life. Are we spending our life in such a way that if the resurrection is not true, we can say with Paul, we wasted it. I mean, is this life really enough for you? That's what Paul's getting at. If Jesus didn't rise physically from the grave, then that means, and follow me on this, that means that God really had no point in creating the universe. It was all just a big fail. If if Jesus' point was just to, to come, pay for our sins, and go back to heaven so he could destroy the earth and we could live in a, a heavenly floating existence forever, that means that God's creation of the universe was a big failure fat mistake. There's no redemption. It means that sin's debt has been paid, but there is no restitution of sin's damages. There's no purpose in Jesus becoming a human. All of that, Paul says, is the result of there being no resurrection. Now, let's flip the coin over. Paul says, now, what is the result if the resurrection has happened? What do we gain from the resurrection if it's if it's true? What if the seed was buried and then it grew life? Let's look at that in verse 20. But in fact, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, I want you to note that word. I'm going to talk about it in a minute. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, for each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay, let me, let me just really quickly, just show that Paul's saying two things here. He's saying two things come as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says because he has, in fact, raised from the dead, there are realities now that we can see and, and live into. The first one, he says, is because Jesus rose from the grave, grave, we get a new Adam. We get a new Adam. Look again at verse 22, a little bit more closely verse 22 he says for as verse 21 for as by a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead for as in adam all die so also in christ shall all be made alive now i know this doesn't preach very well in our on our western context of individualism but the bible basically sorts all of humanity into two subgroups those in adam and those in christ okay that's how the bible sorts humanity either you are a relative of a descendant of Adam or you are a descendant of Christ. Two human families. God sorts them that way. Now, what Paul is getting at here is he's saying the problem with humanity is that there is a sin cycle, a sin matrix that is not stopping. The descendants of Adam have inherited Adam's sin, both by nature and by choice. Humans are in a sin cycle. Imagine if you took a baseball and you threw it all the way into space, now space is a vacuum, right? It would keep going. It would keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going. Imagine the sinfulness of human beings carried out to the nth degree. Imagine if the earth was allowed to go for billions and billions of years. Sin would continue, would perpetuate, just like a baseball in space. The only thing that can stop the sinfulness that has been passed down from our father, Adam, is an object who stops it and moves it in the opposite direction. Now, remember I said in the beginning that God's plan for this earth is not simply to renovate it, it's to replant. God has replanted a new Adam in this earth, and his name is Jesus Christ. When Christ resurrected, it was the new Garden of Eden. He became the new progenitor, which is a big word for the first. He was the first human of a new world. And in him, we follow suit. So where Adam failed, Jesus won. Where Adam died, Jesus conquered death. Where Adam brought a curse onto this world, Jesus has lifted that curse off of this world. Where Adam brought sin and debt onto this world, Jesus paid for that sin and for that debt. Where Adam disconnected humanity from God, Jesus has reconciled humanity back from God. He has undone everything that Adam has done, therefore starting a new creation. His kingdom, he called it, and it all started with a little seed, his life. Packed into his death, life, resurrection, ascension was the beginning of an entirely new organism. He called it the kingdom of God. And you and I get to be part of it. John Piper says the best news of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of the universe has acted in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to remove every obstacle between us and himself so that we may find everlasting joy in seeing and savoring his infinite beauty. See, Jesus not only came to undo what Adam did, he came to redo what Adam did. He came to redo to be the new image bearer of God and all who are in him become part of his new creation. Isn't that amazing? This is what the resurrection is. It's the new birth of the new Adam. And N.T. Wright, who I, I don't quote all the time, but this is a, is a really true statement. He said, Jesus's resurrection is the beginning of God's new project. Not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That after all is what the Lord's prayer is all about. Wasn't that what Jesus prayed? Wasn't that what he prayed? That this earth would be submitted to the Father like the other world. That the physical world would be submitted to the Father like the heavenly world. Jesus' resurrection is the birth of a new spiritual and physical kingdom united under God's umbrella, God's rule and reign. The second thing Paul says is not only that you get a new Adam, he says also that you get a new fruitful vine. Okay, remember that word I wanted you to know? He says the first fruits. Look at it again. He says, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He says it again in verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. What is Paul talking about here? Now again, we have to understand a little bit of the context to get the beauty of what, Jesus, or what Paul is saying about Jesus' resurrection here. What he is saying is this. The first fruits in Jewish culture, okay, the first fruits was what happened, surprisingly, might surprise you, on the day that we would now celebrate as Easter. So here's the, here's the timeline, okay, follow me on this. Passover week, okay, Passover week was when Jesus came into Israel the Last Supper was the Passover Feast, where they ate the lamb. They drank. Well, we don't know if they ate the lamb actually, because it doesn't mention it. Jesus was the lamb. They 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 ate the, the unleavened bread. They drank the cup. That was Passover night. Okay, that night Jesus was arrested. The next morning, after his trial, his legal trial all night long, the next morning would have been the day of unleavened bread. He was re- he was crucified on that day, and his body, which is the bread, was put into the grave. Now, according to Uh, Leviticus what was supposed to happen was the day after Passover which would have been Sunday Okay, the day after Passover they were to go out to the fields and they were to gather the first fruits now the crop hadn't come in yet it wasn't time to harvest the crop it was just time to examine the fruit and to see is there real life here and they would take the first fruits and they would go and they would offer it up to the Lord as the first fruits It was a way of saying, God, our first is yours. But it was more than that. The first sheave, if you will, the first sheave of fruit, they would examine it and it would let them know how good the future crop was going to be. You see, if they had a really good sheave, if they had a really good first fruits, they would know that the harvest was going to be plentiful by examining the fruit. So what's Paul getting at here? He's saying this, he's saying that Jesus, when he conquered death, he became the new Adam, He was the first fruits of a future harvest. Isn't that incredible? Now, let me geek out on you for a minute. Fifty days after the first fruits, there was another feast. It was called the Feast of Pentecost. Isn't that interesting? The Feast of Pentecost was the harvest. The harvest came in. Fifty days after the first fruits, they would celebrate that the harvest came in. And what happened fifty days after Jesus rose from the grave? The Pentecost. Thousands of these new creations, these people that are now in Christ rather than in Adam, all burst into life. The organism of Jesus' life that was a seed began bursting with life. Fifty days later, the harvest has come, and the harvest has continued and still continues, and by God's grace will continue today. The the quality of Jesus' life and the resurrection becomes the standard and the foreshadow of the quality of the life that is coming. He says, because Jesus rose, we too will rise. Because Jesus has replanted life into this world, we now become part of that life. That's why Jesus in John 17 said that I am the vine and you are the branches. He's saying, I am the new life in this world. I am the new vine. It's no longer Israel. It's no longer Adam. It's Christ, and we are grafted into him, and his life passes through us. That's the power of the seed of the resurrection because it didn't grow and go into the ground and die. It grew. It grew. Listen to Colossians 1.18. He's, he, being Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead. Now, that doesn't mean he was a created being. It means that he is the first one to resurrect into a new glorified body that in everything, it says, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God has reunited the heavenly and the physical realm, so that all things might be under the glory of Jesus. I wanna read the quote that I read to you at the beginning again, now that hopefully it has a a little more meaning for you. Martin Luther said, our Lord has written the promise of resurrection not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. If you look out your window right now, you see life. You see life exploding. And when you see that, I believe that God intentionally had Jesus go to the cross and rise right when he wanted him to, right in the midst of the springtime, when we look out and we see life exploding, because it's only attached to the spiritual organism of his life that we can experience that same life. Now, that, that was a lot of theology, okay, a lot of theological implications. So let's get down into the practical here. You're saying, Sam, what does that all matter today? Okay, what is the resurrection? So that's future, whatever. What does that matter for today? How does the resurrection interact or impact my life right now? Okay, let me give you three implications, and I'll give them to you quickly, and then we'll be done. Three implications of why this matters. Number one, it means that there is meaning and purpose in this material world. Like I mentioned before, you know, the Greeks had this funny idea about how a spiritual realm was better than the physical realm and, the, and that uh, the physical realm was just temporal. So their, their expression was, or their saying was, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Okay, that was, that was the idea. The problem with that is it means that what we do right now in our physical bodies has no eternal ramifications. And I just don't think that's true what the resurrection does what the resurrection shows us what the resurrection provides for us is the reality that god cares about physical things he cares about our bodies cares about our lives cares about our time cares about what we do now the summation of paul's argument at the end of chapter 15 is found in verse 58 he says therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He's saying everything that you do in this moment has eternal value because of the resurrection, because Jesus has made this world have hope in it. The second thing, the second thing that this means for us today is that you have living hope, living hope, and absolute assurance because of his victory. Let me explain the difference to you. So um, when I walk past my house, I walk past the elementary school, there's a sign in the yard. And you've seen the signs everywhere. I like them, I think they're great. But they say, everything's gonna be okay. You know? and, and, and that's encouraging, like that's encouraging. Encouraged by that. But I was thinking about it the other day as I was walking by and I'm thinking, says who? Who, who has the authority to say that? Is it the person that made the sign? Is it the person that put the sign in their yard? I mean, who, how do we know everything's gonna be okay? Can, can that really be something I can bank on? Let's say that you're climbing a, a, a mountain, okay? You're climbing a cliff, a rock face. You're at Yosemite, you're gonna climb El Capitan, okay? And you don't even know how to rock climb. <laughs> so you're a little nervous. And you have someone there with you. Now, what's more assuring for you? Someone standing by your side and saying, hey, everything's going to be okay. You're going to get up the rock face. Don't worry, you're not going to die. Or someone coming up to you and say, hey, everything's going to be okay. Before you got here, I climbed the rock face. I mapped it out. I added wall anchors. I put ropes in, and I'm going to go with you every step of the way. You're attached to me. I'm an expert climber. You will get to the top. How do I know you'll get to the top? Because I already went there. That's the difference. See, the hope that the world has to give, essentially, is I hope. You know, I hope. I hope things work out. The hope that Christ gives is backed up in the power of the resurrection because he conquered our worst enemy, sin and death. He has already conquered. He can, with absolute assurance, say that we have hope. The resurrection is the proof positive that we have hope. Listen to what J.I. Packer said. He said, optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. Our hope is not in the grave. Our hope has risen. Our hope is someone that can actually assure. 1 Peter 1.3 is a living hope that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can hold on because we have a living hope. Our hope is living Now, thirdly, I'm one with this. The third implication of the resurrection is this. We have access to his resurrection life now. We have access to it now. So I was mowing the lawn a couple days ago, and my lawnmower broke. And so I didn't have a lawnmower. And so I had a friend of mine who said, here, borrow my lawnmower. It's really nice. I said, great, cool, thanks. So I loaded it up, brought it home. And, I, and, and this, this lawnmower is really nice, but it had these really tiny wheels, and, and in my backyard has lots of holes in it, and the grass was way too long, and I'm just like pushing this thing, and pushing and pushing. I'm sweating. This is a lot of work, man. I finally get the backyard done. It was just so hard to push. And then I bring it out of the front yard, and I do half of the front yard, and the same thing. I'm just pushing and pushing. This lawnmower is so hard to push. And as I'm almost halfway done with the thing, I look down at the handle, and I realize there's a second lever I wonder what this lever does. So I kind of cautiously, thinking, I don't want to kill the engine or whatever, I kind of cautiously grab it. And then I fully grabbed it, and all of a sudden the lawnmower just takes off in front of me. And I'm like, literally like walking a dog now. I mean, the lawnmower is pulling me, and I'm just like, this is amazing. I mean, if I had known this, I would have gotten the backyard done in like three minutes. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a self-propelled lawnmower. Just crazy, right? Mind-blowing. Okay, here's the reality, is that this morning, we can talk about the resurrection, and we can believe in the resurrection, but where the life and the power is is when we actually bring and invite resurrection power into our life now. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians. He says in verse seven of chapter three, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's saying, in other words, everything that I ever cared about I, it just doesn't matter Compared to knowing the person of Jesus Christ, he says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So this was Paul's goal in life. He wanted to gain Christ. And what does that mean? Wasn't Christ already his? Well, read on. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Listen to this. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death. That by any means that possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul saw the resurrection not only as something in his future, but he saw it as something in his present. He saw the resurrection power, the living hope of Christ, as something that he could live into now. He saw it as that self-propelled lever on the, the lawnmower, that if he could just grab a hold of that thing, it would drive him to the end. This is the resurrection power of Christ. Jesus didn't rise and and begin his kingdom work in heaven so that we could just sit around powerless. He sent his Holy Spirit. Because of the crucifixion, because of the resurrection, he sent his Holy Spirit to give us power. And we can live into that power. And we live into it by faith when we believe that our Lord Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He has been victorious over sin, over death, and we are struggling. We press into him. We press into him. I was having a hard day yesterday. I went out and I just began praying, Lord, give me your resurrection power now. I need it now. Not only in the future, I need it now. And he was faithful to do that. The resurrection means for us. It means for us that we have access to his living, eternal hope and work now. So bringing it back around to my introduction, God is a gardener. He's a gardener. And he is in the business of planting life. He has done so through the person of Jesus Christ. And today, my invitation to you, for anybody out there that has not yet plugged in and believed the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, that today would be the day where you say, I'm I'm tired of living on the dead vine of this world. I'm tired of inheriting all of the deadness of my father, Adam. I'm tired of the sin cycle and the sin matrix of this world. I am ready to plug into this new life, this new world, this new future, this new humanity that is the kingdom of God. And the way that I do that is in the person of Jesus Christ, to abide in him like a branch on a vine, to plug into him. The way that you do that is you cry out and you say, Lord, I'm done with me. I'm ready for you. You're my king. You're my Lord. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the cross. And now I live for you. You become born again, the Bible says born again, not into Adam's family, but into Christ's family. You become part of his body, spiritually and physically. You get connected to a local church. You get baptized. And you begin living life into the new world, the new kingdom that is Jesus Christ's reign.